Assalamu alaikum and welcome to another Saturday morning live. You're Joe, myself, Umar Bhatti, and my co host, Rohan Najima. And joining us remotely is Dukri Malik. Uh, welcome, uh, gentlemen, uh, to a very sunny uh, Saturday. How is it going? Uh, morning, Umar. Yeah, it's going great. As you mentioned, the weather's nice. Um, that's good to see. Still in late August. In late August, indeed. Yeah. So, and uh, Dukri, how is uh, Bradford treating you? Alhamdulillah. Could have been better, I suppose. Could be worse, but I'd say the holidays are, have flown by, and inshallah, back to university and back to work in a couple of weeks. Indeed, a couple of weeks' time left, and uh, students will be going back. Um, it's a long weekend, of course, here today, Monday being a bank holiday, uh, sort of marking the end of summer. Um, so um, enjoy as much as you guys can and the listeners, uh, but today we'll be bringing you a uh, show full of uh, exciting things and as I mentioned students one of our first topics will be around uh, the GCSE and A-level results a lot of students taking the exams for the first time since the uh, two-year exam break uh, due to pandemic um, let's see what uh, we have found out over there and then our main main topic of the uh, hour at 11 o'clock will be uh, his holiness speech um, uh, which he uh, did, uh, uh, which he gave to the annual convention to Germany, and it was uh, focusing on uh, how to achieve global peace. Uh, so um, it, it it is a very um, great speech if you had had a chance, but if you haven't, we are here to tell you a bit about it and you know give a, our amateur level, expert level uh, analysis as well. So, uh, but as we usually do, uh, we will go with the news. Uh, We'll start with the news. So, Rohan will kick us off with the uh, his first news. Okay. Um, let's say I want to start you off with some good news because for me this is definitely very very good news. So, as we know, um, sadly, more than one hundred thousand people have entered the UK from Ukraine due to conflict that's been currently taking place there. So we've had hundred thousand, let's say, refugees who are start, trying to start a new life. Um, and I was reading recently that uh, the ONS, the Office for National Statistics, carried out a survey in regards to this. And so far, out of 10 Ukrainian refugees that have entered the UK, four have started working, which I think it's a very, very fast turnaround. And this number has risen for employment in the UK, has risen from 9% in April, 9% in April to 42% at the start of August. So I think <clears throat> there's a couple of reflection points I had there and uh, a couple of things for the rest of the Europe and for the rest of the world to see as well. So the newly published UK Humanitarian Response Insight Follow-Up Survey, a very long name, UKHRIS. So it was commissioned to actually understand the opinions and experiences of refugees that are coming in. So they're particularly t uh, targeting Ukrainian families and Ukrainian sponsorship schemes and gathering data around it. And they spoke to someone called Veronica Kiva who's uh, 31 years old and she's moved to the UK in May and she has a little four-year-old daughter as well. And she gave her opinions about how she was able to find a quick job as a project coordinator. Um, and she says that it was made so easy for her that, um, and she described it as being really great um, thanks to the help that she got from the local council, advice from her sponsors and also generally what we know as our job centre, Job Plus. Um, in helping to create a British CV because obviously a lot of the things that they application processes they have back in Ukraine or the way they have to apply or understand things are very different to what we have in the UK. So things like these um, are very uh, important 
um, according to my personal opinion, when it comes to just the general small things of showing support um, and guiding people according to the methodology and standard that's used within this country. So I think that's the first part when a foreigner, an immigrant, a refugee comes in. That's the first thing you need to do. Another woman, Havana, she mentioned that I love this country. That was a comment um, that she made. I think that's absolutely amazing. Mm. So it's good to see that she actually mentioned that all the people I've met here have been nice and given me words of support. I love this country. And she said, I've also been helping my family members, getting in contact with the people she's left behind, mm. and also being able to adjust and find he things here to do. So I think overall, I want to share this as our first story today. Mm. Um, and from the first 3,412 individuals that the organization has sampled that's carrying out this research, they found that majority of those have, are very happy. And a lot of them have been able to also set up bank accounts, which was 43% in April and now up to 93% in August. So they've been basically integrated and becoming a part of society. And before we know it, we'll probably just see them as another Brit. So That's, that, that, that is great to see because, you know, um, we want to see everyone integrated into society. We want everyone to be welcoming as well of those people. And we want them to be part of uh, sort of British society and um, uh, do good things at the end of the day. And I think it's great uh, that you highlighted and started it up with a positive news story there. Um, you know, uh, of course, the situation in Ukraine is very um, six months on and it's uh, still... Um, very uh, sort of uh, you know a war a civil war whatever you want to call it is happening there right now so uh, it's great to see those who have been able to come out of Ukraine uh, are starting to find work and are starting to uh, be part of uh, British society uh, but still are um, loving life even though uh, back home their country is being uh, overtaken uh, thank you for that Rohan we'll go next to uh, Takrim Takrim can you give us your new story yes I'm so I was scrolling through the news earlier and this headline caught my eye and it was that moderation is the key to life, Great Britain's oldest man says on 110th birthday. So essentially the article was about um, Mr. John Alfred Tinneswood who lives in Southport and he'd recently been informed that he was the Britain, Britain's oldest man. And he was born in 1912 in Liverpool and putting that to context means he's lived through... Uh, well, both world wars, I believe, um, Spanish flu and the COVID pandemic, and you know he's seen the world change, I suppose, um, quite a fair bit. And and, and COVID, and COVID, yes, yes, Spanish flu and COVID pandemics. Um, so fair play to him. But uh, when he was interviewed, when he was asked about you know his secret to a long life, he said, "I have one word: moderation. Um, moderation, everything and all things. Moderation, exercising, writing, and listening." Um, that. Immediately caught my attention because I I remember the hadith of the Prophet or a saying that, or a saying of the Prophet in which he said that moderation uh, is key. Moderation is key, and also reminded me of the Islamic uh, the Quranic verse in the Holy Quran that says, uh, "Do and do not let make your hand be shackled to your neck, nor stretch it forth, lest you should sit down blamed, stripped off." Um, essentially, again saying that we should exercise moderation in everything. And, you know, first of all, for me, it was you know, another evidence of how literally the words of uh, Allah the Almighty in the Holy Quran and how the interpretation by the Holy Prophet sort of are such accurate, so accurate, you know, 1,500 years ago, 1,400 years ago, and are still accurate to this day. 
um, but also just explain to that the wisdom that's contained in the Holy Quran is is profound and almost uh, even now we are still discovering you know new things, new interpretations, new pearls of wisdom that we could not have thought of before. Um, and the idea itself of moderation is is very interesting um, because by having a moderate life and you know keeping moderation and everything, what we're ensuring is that we're not going too far, we're not going too extreme, we're not going to um, you know, towards poverty or reducing our hand, but then also we're not being too lavish and being too extravagant. And in fact, in other words, the Holy Quran says, eat and drink and do not, and do not be extravagant. So, I, I mean, this is really interesting for me. And as I was reading the article further along, it mentioned how he received a card from the Queen and so on and so forth. Um, but he also said how uh, the most important, also it was really important to broaden your vision and don't stay with one thing all the time. And in life as well, um, I think this is, Excellent advice for us um, who may be stuck in a career path or stuck in a certain lifestyle and we might have a nine-to-five job, but we might come home and spend it by ourselves or if we're married with the wife and kids. And, you know, we might be stuck in our... We might sometimes forget what is the purpose of our life, basically. And we might just think that our purpose is to work, earn money, spend that money, relax and repeat the process. But again, here we can use the inspiration from the Holy Quran, the instruction of the Holy Quran. It says our purpose of life is to serve Allah the Almighty. And... One of the ways of, we can serve Allah the Almighty is, for example, doing charity or working for charity and helping to, you know, fulfill our rights to people. Um, and I've seen that the people who do a lot of charity work, people who are, people who, you know, go out with charities such as Humanity First all across the, the world, they do seem to be the ones that are the most fulfilled and the most happy at life because they know that they're doing something with their life that is very, very meaningful. And that brings them you know, sort of inner joy and sort of inner happiness, which I think you struggle to find anywhere else. And mm. again, you know, I think this is how um, the world, Great Britain's oldest man was perhaps trying to convey this sentiment as well. Of course, uh, moderation being a key part of Islam. Um, and it really does, uh, I think people have got to start thinking about moderation, to be honest, uh, with the, the rise of uh, cost of living, energy crisis, um, inflation in general. Uh, so people got to start thinking and making decisions and I guess that is some way linked in what our current situation is. But thank you for that, um, uh, Takrim. Um, to my news story, and um, uh, in Pakistan right now, uh, the, n- there's been a national emergency declared due to a flood, which is uh, which has nearly told near 1,000 deaths. Um, uh, more than 30 million uh, people are without a shelter, uh, as you know, uh, there's a monsoon and rain continues to fall down in uh, in Balochistan and Khyber um, uh, two areas where uh, there is a lot of uh, memories which go back to 2010 when there was also a devastating flood. Uh, so far, uh, the numbers, uh, according to according to the authorities, of as of 25th of August. So that is uh, two days old. Uh, 937 deaths, 1,300 injuries, 3,100 uh, 3, 3, kilometers of roads destroyed, 145 bridges destroyed, half a million, over half a million um, houses destroyed, and 793,000 livestock deaths. So really, um, there's a, a lo- lot of um, um, effect taking place because of this monsoon and uh, Pakistan of course um, 
expects monsoons to happen but this is uh, usually uh, usually expects around three to four monsoons to happen but this time it's experiences eight and the experts ex- experts are suggesting that um there could be actually potentially another one taking place in september and of course this is due to climate change um you know people have experienced some very tough scenes they've had to see their family members washed away and then find their bodies in the morning uh so and people have had to leave their home which of course they say that was not as gr- as as extreme or as, a, as or as as aggressive as it was in uh, t- back in 2010 uh, the uh, prime minister has also postponed his official trip to the uk uh, as he's appealing for f- uh, funds from uh the community around the world and international institution uh, as this is one of the worst flooding in uh, decades um, it really uh, does uh, if you see seen the pictures and videos uh, there really is a, a huge uh, flood taking place um, people making makeshift boats uh, because you know they don't have enough facilities there and uh, houses are being um, uh, being run uh, through the rivers uh, because uh, of the uh, because of how aggressive and strong it is. I think I think what's a lot of people are speaking out specifically in regards to that is the lack of media coverage. Mm. Um, let alone outside. We're talking about it within Pakistan, and the only reason I personally have seen what's going on, like you imagine, um, mentioned, seeing these scenes of water rushing through houses, people being affected, is through social media accounts that I follow. You know, not news channels or tabloids, whatever. Just general social media accounts of people who live in Pakistan. Or who post things about South Asian background, um, and I think that's very, very sad. And uh, a lot of the pictures and videos that have come out are quite, quite terrifying. It's a place where a lot of communities are very poor. There's very poor infrastructure. There's no system in place that uh, safeguards their belongings, their homes, or even the way they get out. You know, do they do an evacuation? Um, and particularly, the things that are being affected right now is their animals and livestock because they don't have any means to actually take these with them. So they have to leave them behind. So um, hopefully people can see now. Uh, I think recently it's been started being picked up in Western media coverage so people can actually support um, and help those people out. Indeed, uh, our, our thoughts and prayers are with those affected in the floods. Uh, so we'll go to Rahan. We'll go another round. Uh, Rahan, what's your second news story for us today? So this is... Um, just something I thought people want to know of interest. Um, so currently, NASA NASA are trying out a launch of a new shuttle called Artemis, and it's a moon mission, <clears throat> meaning that um, they are preparing for their next um, human launch, let's say, to the moon. And we all know it's been a long, long time since the last time we heard of someone going to the moon and a lot of controversies and conspiracy theories around that. (laughs) So currently they're running tests. So what's happening is that um, on 29th August, it's called the NASA Space Launch System. So this will lift off from its launch pad um, and it's carrying another space shuttle within it called Orion. And this is the part that flies off, the rest comes off. Um, And this Orion will fly to the moon um, it will go further than any spacecraft built for humans has ever gone and it will return to Earth 42 days later which is a pretty quick turnaround period so this is pretty crucial because this is the this is the capsule that they're testing to send astronauts to the moon in the coming years 
So, and when this happens, this will be the first time someone has gone beyond the Earth's orbit. Um, I think that's the furthest anyone has gone um, around where the space stations are since the Apollo 17 astronauts returned from the moon in 1972. Um, I think this is a big step for us forward. I know we are trying to first step back on the moon and uh, we have a lot of eyes on Mars as well at the moment from all the tests and the things that have happened recently there as well. Um, and now we see that it's not only a race being run by two nations as we saw back um, in the 60s and 70s, a lot of other nations are getting involved and good news are coming out. It's coming out of UAE um, and even India as well who want to join this race. Just to mention the cost, I think that's also important to remember. Umar, guess how much you think? Well, I had a quick look at the articles, but uh, I would have said millions. Millions, I, okay. No, of course, if, yeah. If I didn't look at the so, article. The test that's being run right now, the test flight itself, so not be actually sending humans up itself, is costing $4 billion. Wow. Yep, so you have to keep that in mind as well. So for any scientific advancement or discovery, you have to keep in mind that there's a lot of costs and background work that needs to be done as well. Um, so other things that are included in the flight, why it's so expensive, is two small satellites that will map ice on the moon, a solar sail that will head towards an asteroid, and humanoid mannequins that will measure how radiation affects the body's internal organs. Um, some experiments will be carried around the moon and back. Others will be deployed into space. One, a tiny lander from Japan, so Japan's jumping on this as well, is even intended to touch down on the moon. If the attempt succeeds, the nation will become the fourth to have soft landed on the moon. That's great. I mean, so, uh, a lot of things at once. A lot of things happening. Um, yeah, it's been a long time since we've had someone go to the moon, so um, it'll be interesting to see what happens this time. Waiting, waiting for them to open up the shuttle service for us. Yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Maybe make it a commercial fight for us as well, yeah. That's true. Thank you for that, Rahan. Uh, let's uh, move on to uh, Takrim. You've got uh, another news story for us. Yes. So uh, another news story that I was having a look at, having a look at was um, Rishi Sunak's recent statement that experts had too much power over COVID, lo over COVID lockdowns. Um, so here he's talking about how uh, the scientists involved in advising the government, the SAGE committee and so on and so forth, they apparently had a lot of control at the COVID meetings and were almost having a, almost overpowering everyone with their scientific projections of how much the COVID virus would uh, would affect the country and how much people would it would, it would affect and so on and so forth. And so soon I was making the argument that, um, first of all, the, the government gave too much power to those scientific data, scientific facts, and was not honest about the potential downside. So he accuses his own government, essentially, and essentially almost accusing himself um, since he was, uh, you know, one of the key ministers at the time, he was chancellor at the time, um, of overlooking the economic aspects, um, the educational aspects, and other aspects of uh, having COVID lockdowns and so on and so forth. I found that a little bit bizarre because, you know, it was his responsibility as chancellor to look after the, the economy at the time. Apparently, he, he has now come out saying that um, he was the only one at the meetings, apparently, who was uh, advising about the economic impact and asking to, you know, kind of keep that in mind whilst also thinking about science. But my point, when I was reading this, I was thinking that it's interesting, actually, how going back to the time of COVID as well, um, science, the scientists and uh, I can't remember who the, Chris Whitty, I believe it was, or whoever the... Uh, the person at the time it was in charge of all this uh, data they did seem to have a stronghold a chokehold almost over over the prime minister and over the 
the decision being made. And the decision being made did seem to be based purely on scientific health data. And, you know, the predictions of locking down for this many weeks would save this many lives and so on and so forth. And at no point really did I, did I, do I recall in the early months of the pandemic um, people being advised that actually, you know, having a lockdown would cause this much damage to the environment, to the, to the economic uh, system, or, you know, keeping kids out of uh, school for this long might have an impact on education. Um, in fact, right at the start, it was assumed that we'd have a lockdown for a few, you know, a few weeks and then go back to normal. Um, even the whole online exams and so on and so forth, which we might cover later on in our interview, um, did not even, you know, was not even a possibility until, you know, a few months down the line. And so, yeah, I, th- I thought this was really interesting. And again, the second point raised in my mind was that the role of science in politics, you know, how much, how much importance shall we give to scientific data uh, when making political decisions? And it's interesting because scientific data is, on one hand, you know, an absolute truth. It is data. It's not opinion. It will give you straight facts. But as I've come to realise in my fleeting, in my uh, fledgling career as a scientist, uh, I suppose, is that scientific data can be interpreted in many, many different ways. And small changes in you know the basics of how you interpret the data can have massive impacts on the conclusion even at a very basic level changing uh the confidence level the confidence interval of a of a experiment or a or a test um can change the outcome from a you know, positive one to a negative one and then furthermore interpreting that data is done entirely by people by humans and so you can have a set of data, but, you know, if it's a little bit ambiguous or the test was a little bit ambiguous, then you couldn't draw in two very, you know, different conclusions from it. And so, again, I think, you know, if what Rishi Sunak is saying is correct, that the you know, government did overlook, uh, did, did not, you know, think about the uh, other consequences of lockdowns, I think this is very concerning. The government that is supposed to be leading us, you know, making balanced and important decisions. Mm. Um but, yeah, I think I just thought it was uh, quite an interesting take on this. Yeah, it is quite interesting uh, because if you think of the context of the uh, political situation right now, then, you know, the only thing you can pin it towards is that, you know, he's trying to sort of make himself look like a leader, someone different within the uh, within the um, current um, leadership contest. So it's quite interesting why uh, why this is why he has made comments like this. Um you know, of course, there are hard decisions which you've got to take. There will always be a, a wrong and right, and you know, I don't agree with this. I do agree with this during a situation like this. So, um, uh, but it's quite uh, bizarre to for him to um, uh, go out against the experts, those who are, have um, done great in the field, and such, uh, and give us uh, their expertise. And it's of course up to the government, and and at the, at the end of the day, it was a, up to him as a chancellor and as part of the cabinet and Boris Johnson, who was the Prime Minister at the time, to um, to accept those decisions. So, you know, in some sense, you know, you can understand why he's going out uh, and uh, criticising them. But it can also be dangerous because it could fuel um, uh, hate, hateful um, uh, content or hate, hateful stuff towards those who, who have um, done a lot, you know, like uh, Sir Chris Whitty, who was the one of the key advisors to Boris Johnson during during the time. So thank you for that, um, uh, Dikrim. Uh, one final um, uh, news point we uh, I, I will make is, uh, of course, uh, a dreadful one, but it's the cost of living crisis. And the current Chancellor, Nadim Zahawi, has actually said that Britons uh, on £45,000 a year will need help paying energy bills and not just those on benefits. Uh, it's quite interesting 
bizarre when, when I first heard this, but he says, and he said this, uh, that energy bills, of course, are soaring for millions of people and families around. And autumn is literally just around the corner. And the price cap has been increased uh, a record 80%. Uh, so that's now £3,549 a year. And there's just a graph, uh, which I can see on here. And the summer, uh, the winter uh, of 1819, the price cap was 1.104. And the lowest was, of course, 1K in winter 2021. And you see this huge jump to the price cap going up to 5K. Uh, what it actually could potentially go up to 5k and then slow well not slowly coming out but then setting itself to 5000 pounds 6000 pounds plus so it is going to be a huge uh, winter and huge couple of years for people in the UK and around the world seeing as what uh, what happens uh, to <clears throat> uh, uh, two people uh, <clears throat> with the energy crisis but we know that everyone uh, will be uh, affected in some way because cost of living, inflation, uh, energy crisis, and whatnot is going up. And um, again, um, there has been, of course, talks that uh, the new government, whichever, whichever, whichever prime minister will be, will be, that this will be one of the first things that they will try to tackle. And we will be know we will know who our new prime minister will be on the fifth of September. So we still have a bit of a uh, way to go. Um, and of course, in uh, businesses are fearing that their costs will be going up and it will be unsustainable for them within the 12 months and they may go uh, bust uh, because um, they're already paying uh, for more, they're already paying more gas and electricity uh, as 75% have said that they have to, they will have to pass on the cost to consumers. Uh, so that again, more in, uh, high, uh price hikes uh, coming our way so that is that and that is the news for the half an hour we start off with so let's take a short break but before we go um, there is an event happening outside uh, Badfutu in the uh, opposite the park uh, and Rahan uh, knows about it and I think he wants to tell us about what is happening so I think we want to give humanity first a little shout out if you are listening and wanting to have a li- nice f- little family fun day so yeah Umar um Across the road from Bethlehem Mosque, uh, Morden Park, we have a family fun day, is what we've called it. Um, and it's from 11 till 5 p.m. So make sure to come down. There's games for the youngsters, um, rides, um, and there's a lot of food and drink as well that you can enjoy and take part of. So make sure to come down with the family. And all proceeds go to Humanity First, of course. Humanity First UK, yep. And that is, thank you for that. Uh, so yeah, if you ha- have a bit of spare time, want to enjoy the sun and go with your family or even yourself uh, with your friends uh, to Morden, Morden Park uh, to help out Humanity First and enjoy a day uh, there. Uh, but we'll take a short break here and we'll come back with our uh, one of our main, uh, main topics, which is uh, we'll start off with the GCSE and A-level results. So join us after a short break. With so many attacks on Islam and the Holy Prophet wasallam, let's set the record straight. He was a man of peace. He went through 13 long years of persecution for his beliefs. He was mocked and ridiculed, but he didn't retaliate because he was a man of peace. When he went to Taif to spread the message of Islam, he was pelted with stones until he was bleeding. Yet he did not retaliate because he was a man of peace. When he migrated to Medina, he established the Charter of Medina 
allowing the Jews, Christians and Muslims to live together in harmony with full religious freedom because he was a man of peace. And after all the oppression that he faced, when he returned to Mecca as a king, he had the right and the power to punish every single one of them. Yet he forgave them because he was a man of peace. The Holy Prophet ﷺ said that no white man is superior to a black man, no Arab to a non-Arab. Rather, everyone is equal. He freed slaves and taught to treat them as brothers. He did all of this because he was sent as the Rahmatul Lil Alameen, a mercy for mankind. Indeed, the Holy Prophet ﷺ was a true man of peace. Assalamu alaikum and welcome back to Saturday Morning Live. Your job myself, Omar Badi, and my co-host, Suhana Lajima, and Takreem Malak, who's joining us remotely. We just uh, concluded a first part of our show, which was around the news headlines, uh, some key ones which we took uh, uh, took interest of. Now we will be going into uh, our short um, segment for GCSE and A-level results. We have a guest as well who will be sharing his uh, experience of this year's uh, 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 results uh, he, he he achieved. Uh, hopefully, we're able to find out a bit more uh, later on. But um, yeah, if you wanna, you know, if you want to be one of those who wants to take part in the show, uh, wants to let an, let us know and take part in the discussion, you can do so on o two o eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight, or you can tweet us on at Voice of Islam UK. So, GCSE A level results. Um, quite a daunting uh, memory uh, we're going down uh, Rohan uh, if you think about it and you were mentioning just uh, during the break time uh, the sort of differences in what we used to do and what uh, uh, the options available for students now yeah um, I think I think as soon as you hear the word results there a lot of reflections come back um, is one of those days that you don't forget very easily something that you are anticipating the whole of the summer as a student for the day to come um, and in fact, that all the images and everything's coming back right now of exactly what happened that day. So when you go in, you see your teachers, you see your friends, you see different reactions of people. And then when you open the sheet slowly yourself, you see the results. Um, I think it's also weird because everyone's wearing their own clothes as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So there's no school uniform yeah. or anything yet. So it's a bit weird coming in during the summer holidays just to crack a piece of paper that determines your future. Um, but uh, during the pandemic as well, I heard actually my cousin recently got his results a couple of days ago for GCSEs. And he was just sat at home in his pajamas, and they got sent online. So he was just able to open up his laptop, check his results, and done. So he didn't have to face the go see people. Everyone asking you, "What did you get? What did you get?" Um, so that experience is a bit different, and I'm assuming obviously a lot of that would have happened during the pandemic as well. Um, a lot of things changing around that. But anyways, almost since our time, the a lot of things have changed. You know, there's no the A stars, A's, no, B's. We've got numbers now. Got so. numbers. Yeah, there's different type of numbers. You've got nine, eight, seven, all the way down to one. And you also have G apparently. So yeah, there's a lot of things happening. Uh, but I think it's uh, quite uh, important to highlight um, uh, what's, why, we, why, why we are um, focusing on this one. Uh, of course, this week was um, the GCSE results. The week before that was A-level results. And of course, and this is the first time um, students have uh, taken exams uh, for uh, A-levels and GCSE after a two-year break, of course, due to the pandemic. Um, a lot of them must have been affected and still are probably affected uh, post-lockdown uh, from, you know, they may have lost family members during lockdown or lockdown was very hard for them. And uh, we, of course, saw nationally that the 
uh, results overall did dip down a bit because the previous two years um, they've been using uh, teachers' uh, grades. So teachers have been predicting their grades. Um, there was, of course, a a different type of uh, way they used it the second time where, uh, where it depended on some exams you took only in school rather than having a full-out exam uh, season. Uh, depending on on the work you were doing, so there was a lot of things, a lot of anomalies, and a lot of uh, different variables taking place. Uh, but uh, there was, of course, um, uh, uh, as the grades were assigned by teacher, this was again a, a different thing which was happening. But just to show uh, what uh, is happening throughout the uh, throughout the years. Uh, GCSE outcomes across uh, all subjects for all ages at grade C and which is a four and above uh, and this is only England so from 2016 to 2019 it's been lingering around 66 percent 67 percent but in the year 2020 and 2021 um, uh, the two years where there was no summer exams and teachers were uh, assigning grades uh, it took a huge jump to 75.9 percent and 76.9 percent and then the first time, of course, uh, they took an exam, it has dipped down to those two results, to 73, but relatively still higher to the 2019 uh, result where um, they were still taking exams. So in, in a sense, you can still say that there's a positive uh, to look at uh, and uh, that uh, there is um, still a huge, um, huge um, factor to consider that despite... Uh, them struggling, they were able to uh, do well uh, in, 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 in these circumstances. Uh, Takim, you're of course still a student. Um, A-level and GCSE exams must still be fresh in your mind. Uh, um, how is that experience uh, for you? It's interesting when Rohan um, Saab um, was mentioning how um, the whole experience of going in and receiving your results. Again, I think I was part, I was part of the first cohort of the covid Pandemic, so I actually, I didn't sit my A-level exams at all. And on results day, it was even more nerve-wracking because we didn't know if it's going to be teacher grades or government-moderated grades and so on and so forth. Genuinely had no idea what would happen when I went in there. I went in, I got my grades, and to this day, I regret the fact that I didn't stay for longer. And I didn't, and, uh, you know, I didn't actually speak to my uh, fellow friends and colleagues and peers who were there. I literally got my results went straight back to my car and headed out and you know I still regret that I missed out on kind of the, the whole experience of that day um, but actually a lot of my friends as well what they did was they just went on to um, UCAS and got the results and checked on there so again the whole experience is a very it was very uh, it, was, it was not a standard not experience that day either even though we did go in um, and yes my GCE exams were in person of course and I remember them very well um, checking uh, you know getting those results and you know being saying those exams and having the results and having that fulfillment of and they're doing well but a levels again there was not that sense of fulfillment i still remember the first few months of university even i had almost this imposter syndrome where i thought you know i didn't get these results um i didn't set any exams for this i don't feel like i've worked hard for these results and i've come to university so you know almost why am i here and it's only when i you know when i kind of reflected on the fact that the reason i was going to university is because of instructions from and how you know my aim in life as a doctor and is to serve the jamaat and so on and so forth that helped me overcome the idea that actually um you know i'm not doing this for myself i'm doing this for the jamaat and you know that's the for me that was one of the one of the greatest things about being a doctor is it gave me regave me that sense of purpose because i saw a lot of my fellow peers as well they were wondrously aiming two of them dropped out as well because they just didn't 
feel like they deserve to be where they were in the position where they were studying the degree they were studying at the university they were studying at. Um, and so, you know, again, the Jamaat is, is what saved me there and Jamaat is what helped me there and forever I, I am grateful for that. But going back to your question, I think the pandemic certainly did affect it in different ways. It certainly affected students mentally in a way. Um, I kind of mentioned already that, you know, people might not have been aware of, of take or take it into context that not sitting exams can create kind of a pressure itself within someone's mind, even though you might not think, you might think it's the opposite. But again, that sense of fulfillment, that sense of achievement that comes with achieving your potential in education is so, we don't really talk about that um, really. Um, and um, I just think it's an interesting concept as well. Mm, yeah, because um, a lot of people must have been, because school during those times was, um, uh, you, you, you must know school uh, during your time at least uh, must have been different, must have been online and um, uh, not in person a lot. Is that right? Yes. So the last few months from uh, February onwards to, of course, getting our results, that was all online. And, you know, you're absolutely correct. That's very, very different from doing things in person, especially because we had no experience of doing online things uh, beforehand. Mm. That it meant that, you know, I could easily, uh, instead of spending my time in school from nine to four, I could do maybe three hours of work during the day and just you know, stay in bed or watch video games or, you know, go outside, play football with my friends or my family and so on and so forth. Um, so, you know, it was a very different lifestyle. And I think it led to a lot of people that lack of discipline in their lives, you know, that kind of maybe affected them long term as well. Um, certainly for me, it even had a sense of laziness crept into my mind because I realized that whatever this work is, I can put on the video, I can put on, join the call and then just go back to bed or just, just you know, sit there and just do, just do my thumbs for the next two hours. Um, so yeah, that's 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 quite um, that was a new way of learning as well. I think I think um, one thing you mentioned there, which was the lack of sense of fulfillment. Um, I did my masters as well. Let's say during in between COVID, so I finished in twenty twenty one, and uh, I felt this thing as well, where it was almost as if we were given um, an easy hand, you know, from our lecturers, our teachers, from the exams and everything. But again, we don't want to take. I don't want to take away anything from those people who struggled during the pandemic because it was a very, very difficult period in many other ways as well, apart from education and school. Um, so I think in keeping that in mind, firstly, it was impossible to get students to come in to see exams, but also the fact that it would have been very, very difficult for them to do the normal exams considering there were big changes in the way they were taught and there was also changes made in their syllabus as well um, during the year in the middle of the year. So it makes sense that um, there should be some sort of leniency or students um, get it easy, I'd say, in a sense. But you have to remember that simply because they have a higher grades in 2020 and 2021 doesn't mean they've got it easy in life now and they can easily get admissions, etc., etc. Proportionally, all the grades would have gone up. And keeping that in mind, when it comes to allocation um, of universities, places and stuff like that, they would still be given out in the same way as you would have in the other years and still to be fair return this year to exams the grades have been very very high if you compare it to 2019 um, as you just mentioned earlier as well with the figures as well so the share of UK GCSE results achieving at least the grade say, 7 which is um, an A as we know it is uh, went up from 20.8% in 2019 to 26.3% almost 6% increase which is quite a lot um, so we're still seeing good results this year as well um, in comparison to what we had pre-pandemic Yeah and um, it really does show you that um, 
this, these exams uh, do uh, uh, it really does show you that uh, teachers possibly could have got it wrong with uh, awarding too many high end it was quite interesting uh, to hear that the green felt some sort of imposter syndrome that he didn't work hard for it uh, which is of course him being very polite uh, but also uh, we know how how smart he is uh, if you, if you get to get a chance to speak to him uh, but yeah we will be having a guest uh, shortly uh, to give us more of his experience uh, of uh, GCSE slash A level results and um, this will help us sort of understand of someone who's freshly out of these experience so we do have him on hold uh, on on the show right now so um, it, we have uh, with us uh, Malik Fraz Ahmed who uh, is um, who just uh, completed his A levels and is off uh, going off going to University of Durham uh, studying law from September onwards so assalamualaikum peace be upon you and welcome to the show Thank you for coming on. Um, so, Fraz, uh, tell us a bit about, uh, you don't need to tell us uh, your results, but uh, seeing as you're going to Durham, they must have been very good. Yeah, alhamdulillah, I got the grades that I needed to meet my offer to go to Durham, and um, they were higher than the offer I needed to go. So, I was, yeah, I was definitely happy with them. And how did your fellow peers do? Um, most of my friends got into their first choice as well. Yeah. Um Especially, which might have been surprising at first, considering the sort of articles and news headlines we saw the day before. Mm. But I think there was definitely maybe a bit of leniency in terms of if they'd missed out by a grade or two, the universities would still let them in. That's that's interesting to hear, but that's good to hear also. Um, Tell us a bit about your preparations when you were preparing for exams this year. It must have been a bit different because um, um, you you, you must have done GCSE uh, online and then... yeah. And then, of course, yeah. My GCSEs were all um, uh, were well, I didn't sit any GCSEs. I sat my mocks, and then yeah. that was I was the first cohort of people that missed their exams. So we had predicted grades. Mm. So of course, when it came to the A levels, it was a lot more of the case about sort of for the first time doing public exams since sitting our stats. So <clears throat> that made it a bit more difficult. But I think the key was really in terms of preparation was just practice and to catch up the time that we'd spent in lockdown. Um, so, like, although it wasn't, albeit not consecutively, we'd spent almost a year of the academic year at home. And that has a massive impact, uh, especially as the transition from GCSE to A-level is quite a big jump, especially from subjects that I did. I did economics and history, which were two, like, essay-based subjects. And with the essay writing technique in A-level, it's a lot different from the technique in GCSE. And if you don't get those foundations in early, which was the case uh, in my case, as the um, as the, the COVID pandemic and we'd just been in lockdown, then it can be really hard to catch up on that later on. So that was the main concern, getting the exam technique right. And after that, obviously, learning the content is the main thing. But um, so in terms of that, that was what my preparation focused on. And then obviously for other subjects as well, it was just into a case of practicing exam questions and mm. seeking the most advice from teachers as you could. Of course, of course. And um, the pandemic must have, um, of course, um, impacted you a lot. Um, did you prefer uh, online school or did you did you like to be in school? Um, I think being in school, there's, there's no um, real substitute for that. I think the, the amount of, um, you concentrate a lot more, especially this was the case for me, you concentrate a lot more in school. And of course, when you're face-to-face with your teachers, you feel a lot more comfortable asking questions. Sometimes it can be, you know, sort of awkward on these on the Teams calls and stuff to get out there and ask questions. And of course, you've got the usual sort of network internet issues that can that can uh, be obstacles. And I think 
I was quite lucky in the sense that because I did these essay-based subjects, if you do sort of sciencey subjects, then the impact of not doing those sort of practical experiments is um, c- can't be underestimated. And so, for example, if you do biology, chemistry, or physics, it can play a, a massive difference if you do um, if you don't do practical experiments in your in your, in your understanding of those reactions. Yeah, that must have, yeah, so very. Uh uh, great analysis of that, and uh, you, you, you. I also understand you were, uh, of course, a local youth leader in your in your area. So you were juggling that and doing your exams at the same time. How how did that? How was that experience? Yeah, definitely. That was. Um, I think time management was the key in terms of that because they were both big responsibilities, and of course, with A levels, you have to put in what you put in is what you get out at the end of the day. But I, the, the main thing I had to do was. It was just sort of a case of whenever I knew an event was upcoming or whenever I knew there were big assignments upcoming, I just had to really manage my time well. And sometimes that meant sacrifices in terms of sports, in terms of some of my other hobbies. But I knew it would be for a temporary time only and it would be worth it in the end. Trendy. And let's look at uh, your university uh, life now. Um, you're going to go out to Durham, you're going to study law. Uh, how are you feeling about that? No, I'm feeling very excited. Um, Durham was my first choice of university. Um and I think just in terms of when I visited as well, the sort of the feel I got of the place, I thought that was uh, I thought that would be the best fit for me in terms of studying well. Um, I had offers from other places as well, um, Kings in London, Leeds, York, and Lancaster, but um, and Kings College, especially in London, was a very big. Um, obviously, it's a really good law school as well. But I think it came down to me in the fact that because I've grown up in the north, I've. I feel more at home and more comfortable in sort of a quiet location such as Durham. And I think there it would be easier for me to study and get a good degree and get a good grade, which is the main thing. And especially in terms of law, if you're, if you're going to move down to London anyway in terms of for the job uh, afterwards, you might as well get the variety and go to university here up north. So that was my sort of decision-making sort of process while, doing, um, while thinking about which university to firm. Yes, that is uh, true. Staying up north is uh, the way forward. We've got two northerners uh, as our presenters as well. Really. Uh, finally, last question. Um, I'm not sure if you've had a lot of experience or your peers have had a lot of experience with um, um, clearing route or those who are not uh, getting into the university, especially in the medical field, actually. There's been a lot of uh, um, hesitancy to uh, open up uh, places. Uh, what, would your, what would your message be to those who are still trying to find places or have not gone through to their first choice university? Uh, what would your message be to them? Um, I would say first and foremost, they should contact universities because in terms of clearing, from my experience, especially on results day going into school, um, a lot of my friends who went through into clearing did get places. For example, one of my friends had applied for dentistry and before he hadn't got any offers from the four universities that applied to. And he was, you know, sort of worried that he'd have to take a gap year, do everything, all the UCAT and B might do that all over again. But after clearing, after he did well in his GCSEs, he went through clearing and he got a a place at the University of Leeds, which was his first choice normally. It would have been if he'd got an offer from there. Um, In the same vein, I had another friend that that hadn't got the grades that he needed for um, his firm choice university. So instead he went through clearing and got another choice for his um, preferred subject course at another university. So I'd say definitely I think there is leniency this year in that sense. And especially because some people, like for example, one of my friends missed an exam due to COVID. And obviously that is something which is sort of out of his hands and was something that you know he can't do anything about. But because of that, his grade dropped significantly in that exam. And because of that, he missed his firm choice. But the university was understanding and he still let him, they still let him into his place. 
And I, the other thing that I'd just like to touch on is on results day, um, my plan initially hadn't been to go into school and I was supposed to be abroad, but our plans changed just, just a few days before. So in the end, I did end up going. And I think definitely I'd recommend to all students in the future as well that on results day, they should definitely go into school. Um, overwhelmingly, it is a joyous experience for most people. And especially that last chance to see your teachers, students and your friends. I was just simply saying it's, it's slightly weird because no one's in their uniform or anything. But it's definitely a chance I think should be taken uh, advantage of. Um, and it, because it may be something you regret later on looking back on the memories. Uh, indeed, the memories you make, uh, Darren, uh, will be stored in you, in you for a very long time. But thank you very much, Marek uh, Fraz, uh, for coming on. We wish you all the best and we hope to have you again soon. No problem, Zaka. Assalamualaikum. May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you. And this was uh, Marek Fraz Ahmed, who is um, an A-level student, or who was an A-level student, uh, sharing his experiences with us. Uh, and he's actually got into his uh, first choice university, which is the University of Durham. And he's going to go there from September onwards and study law. Um, so, yeah, uh, quite a few interesting uh, things, especially the last one. Uh, he mentioned that one of his friends um, or one of his peers missed an exam, but the university still uh, sort of, you know, accepted him. Um, so there is a lot of leniency, actually, this year um, uh, from universities. I think... Um a lot of what he said I can resonate with and a lot of the things that are coming back as well um, this is important so I was actually reading about this as well is that there's more people applying through clearing this year than they've had in uh, several years now um, simply because people a lot of people have missed out on high grades so compared to the last two or three years which has meant that competition has increased and it's become a bit more difficult and uh, universities have also struggled to set expectations in that sense as well trying to make them as accurate as possible compared to the last two years um, but uh, like you mentioned that there's been leniency um, when it comes to clearing as well in fact yesterday when you think about medicine there's probably only two or three universities in the country that allow you to apply through clearing um, but I heard of a case that someone got into King's College for medicine for clearing which is which is what you don't hear often it's actually let's say in a way the miracle um, so I think that, that that's being taken into consideration as well and in that case, I've also heard that um, this year more people are getting the university choices as well. I mean, or getting into university. And I think that's all be taken into account too. I think what happened during the pandemic, there was a lot of people being deferred, um, miscalculations in the amount of people being accepted. Mm-hmm. I think we actually discussed this in the show last year where a lot of people were told, that, OK, you got in, but we have to defer it next year because there's too many people have gotten in. So I think this year they've taken that more into consideration and made sure that it doesn't repeat. Um, so that's good one good news that I wanted to share for A-levels and for the guys in particular is that we've closed oh, the gap yes. on the girls um, by a little bit they're yeah. still ahead of us but uh, I think so that's one of the consequences or not consequences the benefits okay. that have come from this year's exams yes uh, every percent every small step counts uh, but yeah that, that that is a positive news for them uh, Takrim you had a point to make as well Yes, so just the point about clearing that was made, it reminds me of, I think, one of the challenges for higher education teachers and um, teachers in school that are assigned to help with university applications and so on and so forth, is that the lack of certainty and the, the uncertainty surrounding applying to university and results day and clearing and all this kind of stuff has been, must have been quite difficult for them. In the past few years, I think there's been a very standard process. Every year, you know, 
you apply to university, you get your offers, you put down your offers and which one, which way you want them, you get your results, and then if you got your results, you got in. If you didn't get your results, you applied again. Or you had a very, very minimal chance of, with certain courses, applying for clearing and so on and so forth. But ten, nine times out of ten, you then go on and reapply, reset the year or reapply and so on and so forth. But what we're seeing with pandemic is we were seeing, you know, universities maybe having a lack of uh, students coming in or whatever it was, a lack of certainty regarding them. But they were doing weird and wonderful ways of incorporating new new students. For example, with myself, my experience was that I I received uh, grades actually just slightly below, a couple of grades below my, my offer. And when I saw my results, I was a little bit disheartened, obviously. Um, I definitely thought if I sat exams, it could have been better, but, you know, it is what it is. And I thought I'd have to go through clearing or apply again next year and so on and so forth. But then when I got back and opened UCAS, I saw that I had actually got into university. I was wondering how this is possible when I didn't get my grades. And so when I checked UCAS, turns out a week or so beforehand, um, my, my, my university had changed my offer to unconditional. And so that meant that as long as I passed my exams or I got a minimum of C, I think, in each exam, I would have got a place regardless of my results. And then that was weird for me because a few of my peers who actually got you know, the same results as me and who I knew were applying to medicine at King's as well, um, they didn't get any such offer from King's. And so they then actually had to go and do biomed first now and then later apply to medicine and so on and so forth. And so I think this kind of thing was almost unheard of and it was almost miracle-like, I think, uh, mentioned earlier, that these kind of things have never heard of been happening before and, you know, and these kind of things never really happened in past years. And my teacher would have almost said that, you know, would have laughed at me if I'd said that this was an option beforehand, especially, you know, applying uh, for the course that I did and I'm doing at the university, I'm doing that. And unconditional is unheard of. But I think it just goes to show that the... The pandemic really changed things. It really shook up the almost establishment in a way in which, in ways in which we can't even imagine, in which we can't even think. And it caused, it made universities think of new innovations and new innovative measures to take in order to fulfil their requirements, or you know, um, or if there was too many students, and to get rid of a few students. Um, and so that flexibility and having that kind of innovation is so important and so key, I think, um, in order to you know meet the challenges of the COVID uh, uh, pandemic. And again, it's a proof that the COVID pandemic is you know, it had such wide-ranging and has such long-lasting effects that we could go beyond just health, economics, education, and so on and so forth. Indeed, very true. Um, thank you for that, Dagnim. Um, again, if you want to take part in the show and let us know your thoughts and views, you can do so by calling in on 0208 or you can tweet us by uh, at Voice of Islam UK. Um, it is coming near close to the um, next hour, uh, so Rahan, um, GCSE, uh, A-levels, is there anything significant you can think of that uh, we can conclude with? I think you mentioned um, you got through Northerners in the course, so it only makes sense for me to raise a point of concern, is yeah. that the disparity and the differences between people up north the grades, the higher grades being achieved by people up north and southerners, specifically I'm talking about London, um, that gap has increased. Um, this is being due to long-term disadvantages that are in place, learning loss during COVID, and also the fact that the Department of Education fails to catch up for northern regions or external or places outside of London generally as well. Um, and due to that, a lot of people have been angry for GCC's A-levels and are raising these concerns that it is not fair that simply because you are from a specific area, you have that advantage of being able to achieve higher as well. So um, there's a pressure being put on the Department of Mm. um, Education, tell them to cut out those opportunity areas where people can achieve higher grades and 
basically have that equality in education for all. Thank you for that, Rahan. So we'll take a short break and we'll be back after the news roundup. So join us again. God knows the little nuances of you. The little things that like only you would know. That you think about secretly. You don't tell anybody else. Just between you and him. Before I accepted Islam, before I learned about Islam, I was worried about it. I thought it was something to be worried about. The more and more I kept thinking about what religion should I choose? What belief should I have? a dominating thought came into my mind is that choose the one that describes God the best. After learning about Islam and learning that the misconceptions are just that, misconceptions, I learned that it's something to embrace and it's not something to be afraid of and it's a guide for you. I believe that God paved a path that I could not veer from that led me straight to Mirza Ghulam Ahmed al-Islam. The thing that's going to capture the captured my heart is the living God. Nobody else has this. You can, go, you can go do good anywhere. You can be persecuted in a lot of groups. Right? But you can't get that living God. That is ours for this age. Assalamu alaikum and welcome to Saturday Morning Life. You're joined by myself, Umar Bhatti and Rahana Lajima uh, and Takreem Malik who's joining us remotely from Bradford, uh, we have just concluded uh, a part of our show which where we uh, looked into um, GCSE results and A-level results, uh, which came out recently. Uh, GCSE being last week and A-level, uh, sorry, GCSE being this week, uh, this week and A-levels uh, being the week before that. And uh, we had a good discussion around that. We also had a guest who told us a bit about his uh, how he's looking forward to studying uh, law in the University of Durham. So that was a great few. Uh, things we had around it uh, and now we're going to speak about the main topic uh, which is about um, achieving global peace uh, where His Holiness Hazrat Mirza Masood the 5th Caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community um, gave a speech to the German uh, uh, Germany's annual uh, convention uh, which took place in Karlsruhe but uh, His Holiness uh, came uh, Sort of uh, online-ish uh, from uh, from uh, Guildford uh, from um, uh, from Islamabad where it, it is in uh, Farnham, and um, it was a really um, very open speech, very powerful speech, you can say, uh, which we want to look at. And um, if you have a comment and if you want to take part, you can do so by calling us on oh two oh eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight, or you can tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. Uh, so let's uh, sort of uh, have a look and start that off. Uh, and uh, Rohan, uh, you can uh, start us off with uh, leading this uh, part of the show. Um, yeah, thanks so much. Um, I think you you mentioned exactly why we are discussing this, is that um, the speech in itself was very, very thought-provoking, but also eye-opening in the sense that it was a very, very vital reminder. Um, and I think it's necessary for us to go through it um, bit by bit, slowly, and uh, try to understand what the different parts were, why they were being mentioned. So as you mentioned last week, there was the Jalsa Salana Germany, the annual convention of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community in Germany, where uh, around 19,000 people attended over three days in Karlsruhe. So yeah, His Holiness Hazamiza Masroor Ahmed, the worldwide head, current worldwide head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, and the fifth Khalifa of the Promised Messiah, he um, did the, let's say, the final address. 
um, of the three days, and he did that virtually from the UK. And let's say we started off with some good news. So His Holiness mentioned that this is the first time we've had a Jalsa in Germany of a significant size since COVID, so the pandemic has happened. Um, and in that sense, we're very, very grateful to God who has given us this opportunity to see this day. But he says that short while ago, we all remember what happened and the state the world was in with the pandemic and how it led us into a bit of a panic or shock, you know, something we're not used to. Um, and we struggle to deal with it or handle it in a way as well. But he then mentions that we thought that this was a bad state. But look at us now when we are faced with the um, potential of global warfare and the state that this has put in the world, uh, this has put the world into and uh, where one can see the devastation that can potentially be caused. And uh, we are seeing a lot of aspects of the consequences around war as well being felt around the world. For example, one thing we discuss literally every single week is the um, increase in prices, energy prices, etc. Um, lack of trade, um, hostility between nations, the refugee crisis, etc., etc. So all these things we discuss on a weekly basis, which is a consequence of this. So this is the introduction that he made to his speech. Um, and moving on from there, then he wanted to start discussing um, around the conflict. Now we know His Holiness, Hazrat Mizza Masroor Ahmed, has always been advocating for the true image of Islam. Um, and one way he actually does this actively is by traveling around the world, speaking to leaders and dignitaries in world um, parliaments, conferences, etc. Um, religious conferences or whether political and for the last 20 years or so he has been warning world leaders of something like this happening in fact back in 2004 which was a year after he was um, appointed as the Khalifa he started something called the peace symposiums so they actually happen right where we are right now downstairs um, in the hall so this is why it is it's like a evening of where guests are invited um, political, just general guests as well, neighbours and uh, His Holiness gives a speech, a direction, a warning in regards to the conditions of the world why we need to turn to peace and what is the solution to turn into that um, and during that we also give out a peace prize every year as well to someone who has significantly made an impact to try to improve the condition of the world through the activism or the actions or the words and even as soon as these started, he's been warning of the potential consequence of war. In fact, from 2012 is the first time, or the most, the furthest back I can think of, where he actually warned of potential World War Three happening, um, which is um, 10 years ago now. And this has been going on every single year. And talking about the peace prize in itself, which I just mentioned, is that this year the peace prize was given to a Japanese man who advocates against um, nuclear weapons and warfare and has actually been um, traveling the world again doing the same activism around nuclear disarmament yeah I think he's uh, he was one of the mayors for one of the cities as well yeah where for uh, the, the, the bomb yeah yeah exactly for during World War two so I think this is actually a very important point you just mentioned as well so he in an address that he made to the New Zealand Parliament back in 2013, um, His Holiness actually mentioned this. You guys are well aware of what happened during the Second World War and you're also aware of the consequences of using nuclear weapons. 
Um, the effects of this are well recorded, and it, in fact, we're still seeing them to this day. So to not refrain from or keeping that in mind, um, being afraid of this, and uh, out of our own kind of selfishness, advocating or threatening with the use of nuclear weapons, it's a uh, very, very dangerous. Or in a way, you can even see as being childish. You know, um, I think I think that's something we also want to target today. Yeah, just to mention the 2022 Peace Prize winner is Tadatoshi Akiba, uh, who was the city who served as the mayor of the city of Hiroshima. Uh, between uh, 1999 to 2011. Amazing, yeah. So in the, that's the Ahmadiyya Muslim community giving out the peace prize on a yearly basis. Yeah, Ahmadiyya Muslim peace prize, yep. Yep, exactly. So that's amazing. Um, Sakrim, I want to come to you as well in in sharing, if you could share a bit more around what you know His Holiness has been saying over the years and what is his central message in regards to warning the world. Yeah, absolutely, Ron. Um, so I was having a look at the, uh, the speech that Hazur, as he's mentioned, and His Holiness gave recently, and it reminded me of you know the letters that um, His Holiness mentioned a few years ago and wrote a few years ago to um, global presidents and world leaders such as Barack Obama and so on and so forth. And I was, I was having a read through all these letters, which can be found in the book um, World Crisis and the Pathway to Peace, which is online and published as well. And I, I was taken aback almost because perhaps like this was about 10 years ago, I may be a little bit young to understand then, but I was reading back to his illness's letter to Barack Obama in 20, March 2012, and the way his illness spoke about the, almost the causes of world uh, injustice and world issues from also a historical point of view. And having done history at A-level for a bit, and you see the way that his illness has expanded on this issue is almost, you know, it's way beyond even what my teachers would have told me, for example. So the way that has been, uh, his illness mentioned that how the main causes of the Second World War were the failure of the League of Nations and the economic crisis of 1932, and how his illness expanded and how, you know, the economic crisis preceded the World War and so on and so forth. This really, really, first of all, made me realize that these aren't just uh, letters that are filled with uh, rhetoric, for example, or filled with um, advice, but uh, almost kind of meaningless advice, of course not. Um, his illness gives a very, very detailed background in, in language and in, in terms that, you know, those leaders can understand and uh, is comprehensive for those leaders and his knowledge can then be put into action and so on and so forth. And so that was the first thing for me that struck me of how, how beautifully written these letters are and how knowledgeable and how practical these letters are, in fact, as well. And the second of all thing, the second thing that I mentioned when I read this was, again, the economic crisis of 1932 and the failure of the League of Nations is almost, it's very eeringly similar to the failure of, say, the United States Nations recently and the economic crisis, the cost of living crisis, which we have been covering, unfortunately, for the past few, uh, past few days. And so this really, again, rang alarm bells in my mind that are we once again heading towards the Third World War? These situations, these these uh, the from a historical perspective, the situation is very very similar. You know, even to the fact that we're arguing again over a country whose uh, territory is disputed and so on and so forth, and all this kind of stuff. You know, makes me wonder. You know, that are we heading towards the Third World War again? And this is again, and this to think that this was ten years ago, and his illness is predicting what happens. What's happening ten years later is almost 
it's unfathomable. Um, I don't think we can even think about the how far-reaching his vision and how far-reaching his, his words and advice are. And it's a shame that the time the, the leaders may have read it or may not have understood it, but, you know, and it might not might be too late now, but let's see what happens, uh, inshallah. Um, yeah, the agree. absolutely agree with you. And actually, I wanted to get come to letters as well. And uh, I actually have read the, read these letters that he wrote several times. And if anyone else would like to read them, then you can find them either on the Review of Religions website, on the Tariq Magazine website, or if you go on www.stopworldwar3.co.uk, you can find these letters. And these are a series of letters he addressed to world religious and mainly political leaders. And what I really, really love about these letters is that obviously the content of it is is in good news in a sense, but what His Holiness has done, he tailors the letters in a way where they're specific to the person he's writing them to. For example, if he's writing a letter to the Pope, he will address it in a way where he quotes the Pope's scripture and he tries to warn them in regards to that. This is what your scriptures say, you should try to act upon it. In the same way when he wrote a letter to the President of Israel and religious leaders there, he made sure that, quote, the um, Old Testament and told them that this is what it says about establishing peace in the Old Testament, you should try to follow that, and etc. around the other rest of the um, world as well. And keep in mind that he does not do this only for non-Muslims, he also does it for Muslims. In fact, he wrote a letter to the Ayatollah of Iran, the leader of Iran, and in, the way, in that he was actually used the more stern tone um, to address him, saying that he has a greater responsibility to show um, or represent the Holy Prophet of Islam, peace be upon him, and uh, he quoted verses of the Quran according to, and then mentioned that this is how the Ayatollah should be acting, what he should be acting upon. Or political leaders, he reminds them of their responsibilities. Um, and he also says to them that if you are currently acting in this or that way, or this is the consequence of if you do X, Y, Z, um, and why you shouldn't do it. And I think that's very, very important, the fact that someone is standing up and someone is saying that, look, I represent what Islam really teaches. And this is what Islam says for the solution of peace and how I can help you. And in that way, I wanted to mention one point as well is that we say that in our shows that Islam is all about um, establishing peace and we're, in a sense, don't want warfare, etc., etc. But also let's remember that requirement of loving one's nation, which is a part of Islam, means that if it is ever attacked, it is the duty of a citizen to be ready to give every sacrifice. And I'm quoting the Holiness's words here. It, should, it is the duty of a citizen to be ready to give every sacrifice for its defense and to liberate the nation. Nevertheless, if the conflict can be resolved in a cordial or peaceful way through negotiations and diplomacy, then one should not needlessly invite death and killings. And this is what we're advocating for here. This is what the Holiness advocates for. So this is the most important part. Um... Going back to his warnings over the years and what we're currently seeing, um, there's another quote that I was reading back to his speech in 2013 in the New Zealand Parliament, and he mentioned the following. He said, No doubt the state and circumstances of the world today are extremely precarious and are causing a great deal of concern to the entire world. While some of the major conflicts today are taking place in the Arab world, the truth is that any wise or intelligent person will be aware that such conflicts will not remain limited to just that region. And this is exactly what he mentioned last week. So he said that normally people have the idea of wars taking place in the Middle East, Asia, etc. 
places which are far from the West, um, far away from Europe. But exactly as he warned that these conflicts will not stay restricted to those areas, because even when it came to conflicts in the Middle East, let's say the bigger nations, the Western nations were divided in regards to what support to provide, how to help them, or how they can kind of contribute to that. And we're seeing that now as well, the divide that's currently taking place amongst some of the biggest nations in the world. And he quoted a phrase of the Promised Messiah. So the Promised Messiah is the founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community um, who lived from 1835 to 1908. And uh, this was actually something that he dreamt and prophesied about. He mentioned that, Oh Europe, you are not safe. Oh Asia, neither are you secure. And oh the dwellers of islands, no false gods will come to your aid. I see cities falling and habitations in ruin. Meaning that regardless of where you're from in the world, there comes a point where conflict will come, become so severe and such a threat that regardless of where you're from, regardless of how developed your nation is, of how um, democratic, how set up it is, you, it could come to the point where when a war breaks out, when there's a consequence of conflict, you will all suffer. And in fact, from what we see nowadays, from the weapons that are in place, these are mostly prevalent and present in Western nations who spend the most on their defence. So if war was to break out in these countries amongst each other, then that would also have the greatest consequence. I think one thing that was also mentioned was that the holiness was ahead of its time when it came to giving out these warnings. Um, in fact, a lot of people were sceptical at the start. I remember reading a lot of people saying that um, is this really necessary at the moment? We don't see this is the case. I'm talking about many people live in the West. Of course, for a lot of people in certain countries, this has been a reality for many, many years. And experts in some fields have mentioned that the wars that happened um, around the Middle East were a preliminary or already a start to a global war. Um, because when a war happens in a certain nation, all the countries get involved in some way or another. Um, first, there was specifically restricted to the armies, um, to the military of the West, but now even the population, general population is getting dragged in involved as well. And in fact, recently I was having looked through and trying to see what kind of news is coming out from the different um, outlets in regards to this war and how it could affect. And I saw the wor word World War Three itself being used by BBC multiple times, many, many times. The New York Times as well. Um, and Mail Online. In fact, the BBC released an article where it did an analysis of Donald Trump, Syria, North Korea, and it described the whole situation of how we could head into Third World War. And uh, it also now discussed that uh, certain uh, organizations or countries' interventions in the current war would lead to World War Three, And this is the warnings that leaders have themselves been given out. Yeah, and it's interesting um, because, uh, of course, there's a book being published by His Holiness World Crisis, uh, Pathway to Peace, and I was just looking, just doing some research for the show, and there was uh, two um, two um, speeches which I really looked at, and uh, if I talk about the first one, World Peace, the critical need uh, of the time, and this was uh, in New Zealand to the National Parliament in Wellington back in uh, 2013, uh, 
and is uh, quite interesting how his home is at the time and that's what almost 10 years ago almost so still nine years but almost 10 years um, and there was one thing where he mentioned the pathetic situation of today's world world is that at one level people speak of establishing peace whilst at another level they are engulfed in their egotistical ways and wrapped by a shroud of pride and arrogance in order to pr- prove their superiority and might every powerful government is ready to make all possible efforts after the second world war in an effort to establish long lasting peace in the world and to prevent future world wars nations joined together uh, to form an organization which they called the United Nations which is also known as the UN however it seems that just as the League of Nations uh, miserably failed in its objective the status and respect of the UN continues to fall by the day if the requirement of justice are not fulfilled then no matter how many organizations are formed for the sake of peace uh, their efforts will provide uh, proof, uh, proof of fruitless. I have just mentioned the failure of the League of Nations. The institution was formed after the First World War with the sole objective of safeguarding world peace. However, it could not stop the onset of the Second World War, which I have already uh, said caused so much devastation and loss. So really, um, you know, we see a lot of organization and if we look at uh, uh, currently the situation in Eastern Europe, of course, it is in regards to uh, Ukraine joining uh, the uh, the, um, uh, NATO, of course, uh, a Western uh, organization, uh, really. And um, here, of course, uh, his homeless mentioning United Nations as well, because at the end of the day, one of the key things about the United Nations which makes it sort of obsolete is the fact the veto powers which uh, is only granted to five nations uh, being France uh, France, UK, US China and Russia and uh, if they do want to get anything passed through the uh, to, through the Security Council of the UN uh, if any one of those nations um, vetoes uh, then that that motion, whatever that may be, they want to get past will not go. So, for instance, there may be that they want to uh, stop uh, stop funding for a certain uh, project uh, or stop uh, or help them help a part of the world. Uh, and if one of those key members of the five uh, says no, we veto this, veto this, then it doesn't happen. And hence, why you know the. Of course, the sole aim of the UN is to, you know, safeguard uh, ourselves or the whole world from another disaster like World War One, World War Two. It looks like it's failing its objective, as His Holiness has mentioned here as well. Um, I think yeah. So that's a very, very important new point you mentioned there. And as you mentioned, you read out from a speech from I believe 2013 again. But uh, he said the exact same thing last weekend. <clears throat> and if I quote you, you said that um, many nations or people are engulfed in the egotistical base and they're wrapped in a shroud of pride and arrogance. And this is what's most, most important. So His Holiness last week mentioned that there are certain nations and leaders who advocate for peace, who say that we are here to establish peace around the world. But their actions and words, in a way, are contradictory, contradictory to this, meaning that they're all for peace unless it comes to themselves, to their own question. So if someone stands up against them or someone says something against them, they are the fastest or the quickest in the way to stand up and be ready to fight or retaliate in a way which can be devastating. So in that way, His Holiness was trying to say, if you do advocate for peace, then be true in your words. Because what this is, it's a 
selfishness and pride which takes over their thought process, their understanding, and it's a complete disregard for human life to think in that way as well. And uh, to quote him again, he said that some analysts are now saying that the destruction that could be caused by these wars um, that are looming and that we're seeing would be so devastating that according to one estimate, around 66% of the world's population will be wiped away during the war due to nuclear weapons. Within the following two years, due to the use of atomic weapons, the devastation will be of an unimaginable scale. An ordinary person cannot even fathom it. Hence, these are very alarming circumstances. And this has been something which has been advocated by not just the current caliph. Um, I was looking through history, actually, and I was trying to see what all the caliphs have said um, in regards to this as well. So the second caliph was around the time of when the unfortunate uh, attacks were hap- happened in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, um, where the nuclear weapons, the nuclear bombs were dropped. And uh, he wrote a letter in 1952 to the world governments, and he mentioned that the world is trying to maintain harmony and peace with weapons, laws or reason. But these three things, though necessary in one respect, are not enough. He continued these three things, meaning the weapons, laws and reason, may have some apparent benefits but can lead to some harm. Instead, he mentioned that it is through spirituality that a just and peaceful world could be created. He said, Spirituality is the name of natural tendencies channeled into morality. When these tendencies are moulded into morals, then rationality is a certain part of them. Consequently, a permanent bond is created which cannot be moved from its place by any greed, evil desire or fear. This highlights that when one adopts spirituality, their morals and actions become unbreakable. And so we would be able to live in a world of peace and true and permanent peace. I think we're going to get more into some of those solutions later on. Um, yeah, uh, but let's take a short break and we'll be back after a break. Uh, join us again. Uh, again, uh, you can... Um, um, take part in this conversation by calling us on 0208 687 7878 or you can tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. So we're going to take a short break. To think that seeking help from God is sometimes without result and wondering that the Rahmaniyat and Rahimiyat, graciousness and mercy of God, do not manifest themselves in the shape of help is the result of misunderstanding. God Almighty surely hears the prayers that are offered in sincerity and helps the seekers of help as he considers proper. But sometimes it happens that the prayer and request for help of a person are not inspired by sincerity and lack the humility of the heart and his spiritual condition is not up to the mark, so that while his lips utter the words of supplication, his heart is inattentive or is only making a show. It also happens sometimes that God hears the supplication and bestows whatever he considers proper and most appropriate in his perfect wisdom. But the foolish supplicant does not recognize the hidden favor that God does to him and begins to complain on account of his ignorance and unawareness. He does not appreciate the verse. وَعَسَىٰ أَن تُحِبُّوا شَيْئًا وَهُوَ شَرٌّ لَكُمْ وَاللَّهُ يَعْلَمُ وَأَنْتُمْ لَا تَعْلَمُونَ That is, 
It may be that you dislike a thing which is really good for you, and it may also be that you like something, but it may be the worse for you. Allah knows the reality of all things, and you know not. A new station, the voice of Islam, with live discussions, religion and culture. Understand the true teachings of Islam with the voice of Islam. Assalamu alaikum and welcome back to Saturday Morning Life here at Jabba Masafa Mubrati and my co-host Nurhana Najima and Takri Malik. We just had a short break and we'll continue on with the conversation but remember you can take part and call us on 0208-687-7878 or you can tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. Uh, before I hand over to um, uh, Rohan, I, I do have, I do want to mention a few things as well. Uh, from His Holiness's uh, speech, which uh, sort of uh, uh, I looked at. And this was, again, at the beginning of his address, where he said, which may, of course, uh, I, I may repeat what um, Rohan said, but it's uh, it's something which needs to be highlighted again. And uh, I quote, uh, for, a long wa- for a long while, European nations and other Western countries or developed nations were sitting content, presuming that the people facing turmoil, war and destruction are thousands of miles away. And so they are safe when they are. They thought themselves that it is in Asia and the Middle East where conditions are adverse and bombs are exploding. It is there that people are dying, women are being widowed, children are becoming orphans and people are losing their limbs. And so to us it makes no difference. The developed countries continued to send ammunitions into war-torn countries so long as they were able to sell their weapons. To them it did not matter if lives were being lost, but they forgot that the same conditions could eventually develop in their own countries. They were blindsided by their arrogance and they lost the sense of reality. Now the entire world can see that what was feared has now been realized and Europe is now once again home to war as Russia and NATO stand in opposition over Ukraine. Uh, So that really... um, quote which I read from this holiness, uh, the fifth caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, uh, highlights uh, sort of the arrogance people had, um, you know, when you w- w- during those time when you were speaking to people, talking about you know what's happening in Syria, what's happening with ISIS, stuff like that. People are like, oh yeah, that's way too far away. Uh, we don't need to worry about that. His Holiness has been warning us about these things for a very long time, uh, and of course, uh, I had to pull out the book again, World Crisis and Peace. Uh, and in his address to uh, in, where he was in Japan in 2015. Uh, in the mosque, uh, in there's a mosque in Japan, uh, and the, the title of the speech was the key, the keys to global peace in a time of global disorder. Even during that time, His Holiness mentioned a lot of uh, problems which were going on. Uh, of course, there were the ter- terrorist groups taking advantage, uh, Eastern European hostilities between Russia and Ukraine and other European countries, uh, tensions between the US and China uh, due to American warships coming into South Chinese seas, uh, China and Japan as, as well, Kashmir, the issue between India and Pakistan, in Africa, a lot of terrorist groups gaining power. Uh, and so it really did seem like throughout the world, uh, even during that time, uh, little small blocks of uh, conflicts were developing and uh, it was really um, uh, interesting 
uh, to see when his own has mentioned this again uh, in, in, in recently uh, a week ago and if you read the uh, speeches now uh, you're just only coming into the realization the realization now that this is something which we've been warned for a very long time and um, again if you'd really need um, evident, even more further evidence than recently the NATO uh, General Secretary has uh, told uh, that it's time for uh, more defense spending as we live in a more dangerous world as uh, you know the the uh, alliance continues to support Ukraine uh, against uh, Russia and the secretary general that is Jens Stoltenberg uh, who has um, uh, said that you know his organization is helping to uh, Ukraine to uphold the right to self defense and preventing the war from escalating beyond the country so I think in reality, so what you just mentioned that the, you quoted the His Holiness, and what he's he's basically saying out loud what a lot of us think or even saying, um, and those points are very very important considering that a lot of people think they're safe or they're okay, or even when conflict has almost reached their door, that everything will be fine because we've become complacent to the fact that these things don't happen to us or these don't happen over here which in a way is a very, very false understanding because we are definitely involved in the conflict around the world. It's just that our public or general um, population does not need to get involved there as much. So I think that point there is very, very important. And this is what I love about His Holiness, the fact that he doesn't speak about just the um, rights of his own community, the Ahmadiyya Muslim community. He doesn't just speak about the rights of his background of Pakistan or the Muslim population alone. He speaks about the rights and equality of the whole world. And in that way, he's in a way put on the mantle of the person who's being most vocal about establishing world peace and actively making an effort, making it his permission where he reminds people on a weekly basis whether those are Ahmadi Muslims or they're non-Ahmadi Muslims, the general population, they're religious or non-religious. He makes sure that a message, the same message gets across to all of them. And we know as well that as Ahmadi Muslims, he has told us to do the same. You know, recently we had a campaign across the UK, so as soon as the conflict started in Ukraine and Russia, which was the Stop World War Three campaign. And Ahmadi Muslims took to the streets where they were peacefully demonstrating um, giving out leaflets, sharing information in regards to the Holy Minister's message and warning to the world. And also in that leaflet, if, you, if I, was, I handed some out myself in uh, where, where I'm from, and then within that leaflet there was a brochure and it mentioned the steps to establishing peace. And I think that's also something we're going to discuss today. I think one thing I wanted to mention is that we're speaking a lot about nuclear weapons. Um, a lot of us, I think... The only understanding we have of what nuclear weapons are just from what we've read or from watching movies. Um, I think it's a big vocal point that's discussed in a lot of movies. And uh, I wanted to share some points around what we can do uh, in the potential circumstance or event of a nuclear explosion, disaster happening around you. So you have to understand that it may or may not be the case that uh, you are given a warning prior to the nuclear attack. And uh, the one of the most the, the initial explosion itself obviously is very very dangerous. But the fallout, which is the fallout of uh, the radiation that happens afterwards, it falls down from the sky into the ground, is also very very dangerous. And the first few hours that this takes place is vital to get out of the way of that basically. 
So, um, and it is the fallout itself which spreads far and wide um, and causes the most damage rather than the explosion itself. So the, some of the some of the ad- advice or warnings that I've personally come across um, and I've kept in mind now, I think they constantly keep going through my mind because it's, it's that, that fear is always there now, is that the first thing you should do is get inside, right? If you've survived, um, if you're okay after the explosion and everything, you should try to get away and inside the nearest building. And the best building to get inside is one of made of brick or concrete, okay? Um, if you were outside during the time of the explosion and now you've moved inside, you should remove all your contaminated clothing and wipe off any unprotected skin, your hands, your face, wherever was un- um, uncovered. And you should go to the basement of the building or the middle of the building, meaning that you should stay away from the outer walls, the roof, the windows, right? Try to maintain at least a distance of six feet between yourself and people who are not part of your household. If possible, wear a mask if you're sheltering with people who are not part of your household. And children under two years old um, or people who have trouble breathing, those who are unable to remove their mask on their own should not wear them, of course. So that's for those who are outside have come inside. Now, for those who are already inside, you should stay inside, of course, for at least 24 hours, unless local authorities provide other instructions, they provide support, etc. Um and uh, keep your pets inside um, and do not mingle or get together with other people who let's say in the building stay within your families and your close circles when that happens as well make sure when that happens is you try to find a method of staying tuned to the instructions being given out by the authorities because most likely there are some sort of crank radios or speakers or something that will be set in place to give you those warnings and tell you what to do um, and one thing is holiness is actually be instructing people, um, which should be the case regardless of a nuclear war or any other um, catastrophe, natural disaster, is to stock up. Mm. Um, there's many, many things we should stock up up and we can. Um, mainly vital food supplies, drinks, water specifically, um, but also other equipment as well when it comes to medical equipment or just general use equipment, which you would even use for a camping trip. Um, Things like that will come in very useful for, let's say, when uh, you have a lack of clean water supply, you have a loss of power and electricity, etc. things like that. So there is a list that has been prepared, uh, emergency pl- supply preparation list that's been prepared by Humanity First UK, which you can find on their website um, for anyone who's looking for it. So these are just the general points in regards to some of the small things we can do. But I think we're going to move on to the part of the show where we actually give you the real, real root solution when it comes to establishing world police. So these are just, so far we just mentioned some mitigation factors of things we could do in case something happens. But we want to try, advocate for, and try to provide the real solutions. Um, so I think the best thing for us to do is go through what His Holiness said. So he set out a list of 10 points that we should follow and adhere to when it comes to establishing peace and we should discuss each of them. So Takrim, I want to come to you for the first one. Um, His Holiness mentioned that the first most important and most efficient um, way that will work for establishing world peace is recognizing our creator. Um, What do you think about that and why do you think that's the case Takrim? I think that's a very, very key point, as His Holiness has mentioned, and it is the basis of, essentially, our lifestyle and the basis for our mindset. 
And that is our mindset and our kind of morals are then what guide our political, uh, economic and emotional decisions. And all of that comes down to our relationship with Allah the Almighty and in a wider sense of the term, our recognition of the sense that there is a, a superior being, a higher being who has this power over us and we are subservient to him. And I think a lot of this injustice in the world comes down to a sense of almost ego, almost a sense of dominance, a sense of power that we can do whatever we want. Our decisions are in our hands. We can make whichever country we want follow us. And, you know, we can kind of, we can uh, impose our will on other people. And there is a lack of, you know, the lack of, like I said, the sense of thinking that there's someone higher than us whose instructions that we should kind of follow. Do you know what I mean? And furthermore, it also, it also is kind of, um, indicative of the fact that there's a lack of brotherhood in the world because if you then think that you if you do not recognize the higher creator who created all of you then how can you recognize the sense of brotherhood and the sense of unity with someone who lives in the country next to you even though these boundaries are entirely man-made these political boundaries uh, you know uh, country boundaries we are indeed all humans we are all of the same race um, and we are all equal as stated in the, in the, in the Holy Quran as, as stated by Islam but if we do not recognize that we are created by one creator, then immediately that sense of brotherhood uh, that is inherent in that belief goes away. And I think this is, you know, a key root of all the, of a lot of the problems and a lot of the evils, a lot of the issues and the injustices we're feeling today is that people, you know, not recognizing the fact that they all belong to one creator and therefore they're all equal and they all, therefore they're all brothers. And if we do not have that sense of justice and sense of brotherhood, then how can we expect that world leaders will act with justice, will act with uh, uh, impartiality, and will favour, you know, another nation's uh, needs over their own, for example. What we're going to see is what's happening here is that each nation is favouring their own, each nation is looking for the betterment of its own country. And this kind of nationalistic ideology and nationalistic mindset is what's ruining the world because, again, we're forgetting that we are all, all the same. Another key point, I know you haven't mentioned this, but I wanted to mention a key point um, that His Holiness mentioned right at the end of his speech, in his final prayers. Uh, his Holiness said that uh, establishing peace um, starts at uh, starts in our home, basically. And he says that our role of establishing peace at all levels of society starts from within our homes and goes all the way up to the international scale. And again, this idea of having peace at home and reforming ourselves individually a lot of people ask, what can we do about the crisis? You know, what can the ordinary man do about the crisis in Ukraine? You know, I can't call up, you know, Putin asking to stop. I can't intervene myself in Ukraine. Uh, what can I do? And his holiness provides a clear pathway to us as individuals. He shows us that if we create that moral reform within ourselves at a deeper level in our own home, then what that means is that we can then influence our generation, our children, our brothers, our parents. We can then influence the wider members of society. And eventually what happens is this avalanche of change starts from the home and whole societies are, are changed and reformed. And in this way we can save the world and in this, in this way we can spread the message of peace, spread the message in one creator and hopefully you know, put an end to the injustice of the world. That was absolutely spot on, Zagreb. Um, I think you mentioned a lot of the points that I was thinking of as well. Um, in particular around the purpose of understanding or realising that the creator is there, that the belief in God and recognising him means that you now have to also believe the laws and the teachings and the morals that have been set by God. 
Now, this will automatically then lead on to you being held accountable for the way God has admonished or told us to treat people around us, how he has told us to, uh, the rules of warfare, how he has told us to um, treat our enemies and our friends and neighbours. So all those things you start becoming accountable for. And you said the main concern or the root cause we face these conflicts and problems is the idea of individualism where people do not care about those around them where it's everything about themselves and this not only applies to certain people but also to nations in themselves as well so by recognizing their god they recognize their rights and their responsibilities to those around them and they have to follow them as well another thing you mentioned is that the holiness makes sure that the ahmadi muslim community so his own community take the lead and the front in uh, trying to establish the peace and recently actually when the conflict started in Ukraine in February 2022 he in his Friday sermon he mentioned and he admonished the Ahmadiyya Muslim community he said we as Ahmadi Muslims can only pray and seek to guide mankind and we have always done this and will forever continue to do so certainly at this time Ahmadi Muslims should pray with great fervency for the peace of the world may Allah the Almighty save humanity from the state of the war that has erupted because if the situation worsens, then the horrific consequences will be such that mankind cannot even imagine. We can only pray that may Allah the Almighty save humanity. I mean, um, I think moving on, I think for the rest of the points here on the list, they actually, in my opinion, just branch off the first point, which is recognizing the creator. Because within the recognizing the creator, all of these other things come as well. So point two he mentioned is establish absolute justice. Now, if you go back to the Quran, this is actually not a point the Holiness is making himself. This is something that's mentioned in the Quran about establishing absolute justice. And in his letter that the Holiness wrote to the President of the Islamic Republic of Iran um, back in 2012, he quoted a verse of the Quran and he says that, which says that, And let not the enmity of a people that they hindered you from the sacred mosque incite you to transgress and help one another in righteousness and piety but help not one another in sin and transgression. And fear Allah, surely Allah is severe in punishment. This is from chapter 5, verse 3 of the Holy Quran. And in the same chapter on verse 9, it also mentions that, Be steadfast in the course of Allah, bearing witness in equity, and let not a people's enmity incite you to act otherwise than with justice. So the point he was trying to make here, and he's requesting the president of Iran, that you should focus all your efforts and energies towards saving the world from the Third World War. The Holy Quran teaches Muslims that enmity against any nation should not hinder them from acting in a just manner. And this is the true meaning of absolute justice. The third thing that's been mentioned, Umar, if we come to you for this one, is uh, His Holiness mentioned that we must foster global unity. Why do you think this is important? Well, this sounds like an exam question now, <laughs> but yes, global unity, a very uh, potent thing indeed. Um, well, we di all have different um, objectives, uh, different uh, things we want to do, but uh, I think one of the key things that His Holiness does mention is that if we set aside uh, our own personal goals, and which he did in his sermon, uh, his speech as well, if we set aside our own personal goals and come together as one nation, one world, and start um, looking at real peace, uh, real solutions to peace. Yeah, it may, it, may, it may not look good for your country or your organization or institution, then we can try to uh, alleviate some of that pressure and make global peace uh, as a, a real solution. 
Um, I think, and then even with this point, when it comes to establishing, so foster global unity, um, Islam provides the solutions in regards to this as well. So, for example, um, Islam says, despite your differences in your race, in your nationality, in your background, in your religion, you're all equal in the sight of God. In fact, in the last speech that the Holy Prophet made to in a large gathering to his people before he passed away was that uh, no Arab is superior to a non-Arab and no black person is superior to a white person and vice versa. Meaning that in that way, we're all created equal by the same God. And the fact that recognizing that creator should become a source of unity and what unites us. So he, this, the reality of this is that despite our differences, we should come together in establishing peace. And we should not see each or one nation being superior simply because of its might and power. Because the people that live within the nation are exactly the same and as equal as the na- people of another nation. So in that way, this also comes under the term of absolute justice. Um, number four, or solution four, in the list that's been provided, we've already discussed in detail, which is seek nuclear disarmament. And again, like we mentioned, the person who received the Ahmadiyya Peace Prize this year was someone who advocates for this. Um, so you can see the importance that is being put onto it by the community. Um, and His Holiness addresses this in every single speech as well, the consequences of nuclear war. And for that reason, I also just read out some of the steps that we can take to... Um, save ourselves or mitigate the consequences of this. So that's the next part, seek nuclear disarmament. The fifth one, um, which also fits into this category, um, and also something he mentioned last week, which I'll I'll mention, is that number five is eliminating weapon profiteering. Now, what this means is that, not even the Holiness mentioned in a speech last Sunday, is that many nations advocate that they are trying to provide peace um, and the solutions to conflict in certain regions of the world, for example, Middle East, South America, Asia, where there's a war happening. So certain power nations, um, developed nations, they say in the West, say that we'll help you out. His Holiness, and I quote, says that developed nations continued to provide these countries with weapons, despite saying that they'll help them, so that their arms trade could continue, all the while thinking that if these people die, then so be it, as does not impact them. However, they failed to realize that they too could be engulfed by the same circumstances. Their efforts to continue progressing clouded their senses and blinded them, as it were. Now the entire world can see for itself that the threat of what could potentially unfold is precisely taking place and conditions of war have emerged in Europe as well. So I think he's made it pretty clear what he means by the weapon profiteering that has been taking place and who in reality is trying to provide a solution and who reality is only boosting or increasing the warfare that's taking place. Um, number six we can come to is, is something we also discuss often in the show, whether that's a problem in the UK or in poorer nations, is that we should create economic equity and eradicate poverty. Because um, we've discussed this previously in the show, the means to do this is there. Even organizations, or I'm talking about external, not within the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, um, external organizations, WHO, etc., places like that have actually created a plan or have actually mentioned how this is possible to remove um, world poverty. Uh, and this is something which is not implemented, again, out of selfishness um, of certain nations that yeah, could help. Yeah, I remember we've done a few shows around that. Figures were going around. Mm. And if you even think about it, um, you know, the amount of money we're spending on our arms, that could all be going towards alleviating uh, pressure from the po- poverty. Exactly. So in that way, like I mentioned, a lot of these points linking together. Um, going to number seven. 
again, this is very, very important for a Muslim to do, work for the good of one's nation, right? So part of our faith is being loyal to our nation and taking part in it. And by, by being doing good for it, it's actually contribute, become an active part of society, integrate and try to benefit those around you and actually care about those around you. And for example, um, one of the picture that's been pointed put here, along with that is a picture of scales, so law. Um, so that is one way um, that you can help those around you, um, which is um, um, through advice, um, civil service, wherever you want to do. But I think people get the idea um, that they should integrate and become a part of society and community. Number eight, which again, this holiness has mentioned in his um, World Crisis and the Pathway to Peace, that being a representative of Islam amongst, uh, in front of the politicians and the parliaments, um, he wants to absolutely make it clear that the teachings of Islam reject all forms of extremism. And this is what number eight is. To establish world peace, we must reject extremism, regardless of what kind this is. Whether this is a religious extremism, political extremism, social, etc., economic extremism, wherever we see the kind of it, we must remove this from all forms of society. And everyone must come together to do this rather than put, do a blame game of, yeah, it's your fault or your people are doing this, etc., etc. Number nine is instill service to humanity. And again, this is something that Ahmadiyya Muslim community and His Holiness advocates often about and he reminds us all the time in regards to what our responsibilities are to those around you um, to increase our charity and the amount of verses you see in the Quran about this make it clear why this is so necessary and important Thank you very much for that Rohan, um, that was very thorough of you to go through uh, world, uh, through the points um, and we are uh, coming closer to the end of the show um, I think it's been a pretty uh, information heavy show where we've uh, talked a lot about what is happening uh, in around uh, the world and you know how his holiness has given us uh, pathways and goals and uh, practical solutions uh, the way we can try to um, make um, establish peace essentially uh, but again, the f key fundamental point is to first off and foremost is to recognize the Creator and uh, that there is one God uh, and He still speaks uh, as He has it and he, as He used to. So really, uh, that's one of the most fundamental things. But again, um, thank you very much for that. Um, so uh, we are nearing the end of the show. Um, you can again join us next week, Saturday, from 10 to 12 uh, on Voice of Islam. Uh, I just want to thank the co-hosts, uh, Rohan and Takrim. But uh, Rohan, you want to say something just before we end? I think just the last point I want to say that if you want yourself to read the letters that he's written to world leaders, if you want to read the solutions that I've read out as well, then you can visit www.stopww3.co.uk where you can also find more information about his holiness and what were the message that he advocates for. Indeed. Very, thank you very much for that. Uh, thank you to all the listeners who are listening in and to the tech team and our staff behind supporting us with all the research and uh, the topics and helping us. Uh, so that just leads me to say, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all.